Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Coming up on today's show, assisted dying came up during a conversation between a Veteran Affairs Canada caseworker and a vet who had not mentioned it. It really caused a lot of concern. We'll also have a conversation about having private healthcare as part of the public system. And we'll chat with Dr. Alika Lafontaine, the new president of the Canadian Medical Association. So a story last week that came out, uh, Global News reporting on a discussion between a Veteran Affairs Canada employee discussing medical assistance in dying with the veteran. Now, there's been a storm of outrage ever since this became public. According to the reporting, the vet in question never raised the issue. He never talked about it. Um, the employee brought it up completely unprompted. Uh, opposition conservatives are calling for an inquiry. The Liberals have vowed to take steps to make sure that something like this never happens again. And uh, they're not the only ones concerned by all of this. Uh, we're going to speak now with Debbie Lowther, the Executive Director of Vets Canada, and get her take on this. And uh, Debbie, obviously, this is something that uh, I'm sure was concerning when you heard this story as well. It was. It was just, I thought, disgusting. And the more that I'm reading about it and hearing about it, I'm even more disturbed by the conversation. Now, from my understanding, this vet was seeking assistance with um, some post-traumatic stress disorder, some mental health issues, things like that. Didn't bring up the matter of medically assisted dying in any way, shape or form. And it was the Veteran Affairs Canada employee who suggested it or at least raised the issue. Is that your understanding as well? That is my understanding, yes, which is just such a bizarre thing to bring up out of thin air. Yeah, it is. Have you ever heard of anything like this happening before? No, absolutely not. I think it's it's appalling, really. Um, I've never heard anything. And, you know, nothing the department does surprises me. You know, we've been doing this since 2010, and we deal with the department every single day. Um, so nothing they do really surprises me, but I have to say this one surprised me. You know, I mean, as distasteful as it is, and as as you said, disgusting as it is to raise it, there's some real risk involved as well, right? Bringing up an issue like that, putting this in front of somebody who may be struggling can cause some really drastic, catastrophic outcomes. Absolutely. You know, this could be a veteran who, you know, might have been contemplating suicide, and all of a sudden they're presented with an option that you know, kind of takes away that barrier. They might have been thinking, I can't do this because I don't want my family to find me. And, you know, now they've been presented with a completely different option. Um, It's just, you know, even hearing about it could have just been that one thing to push that veteran over the edge to say, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. You know, and this story, of course, grabbing headlines, as you said, it's just appalling. But is it an extreme case that illustrates, you know, a bigger problem, that being that vets go out seeking support like this from Veterans Affairs Canada and and they just don't find it? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, like I said, we deal with the department every single day and, you know, we deal with veterans who, you know, sometimes through their case managers and, you know, veterans don't feel as though they're being heard. You know, they, they feel 
they don't have a whole lot of faith in the department, I don't think. Um, and I, I, I'd like to come back to, you know, kind of what the minister's uh, communications people put out, that they're calling for a full investigation. Yeah. And they want to provide training to frontline staff on how to approach this subject. Well, it should be simple. Don't bring it up. And if the veteran brings it up, tell them they have to discuss it with their health care provider. So that this is something that you'd like to see removed that. completely out of the Veteran Affairs Canada portfolio. It's just something that they don't deal with then. Well, yeah, it's I mean it's you know, it's a Canadian law that made can only be discussed between the patient and their healthcare um, provider. Their physician. Patient. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, there shouldn't need to be a whole lot of training there. Like I said, if if the veteran brings it up, then, you know, redirect them to their healthcare provider and the frontline staff at Veterans Affairs shouldn't be bringing it up. And, um, you know, you mentioned training, and that seems to be a lot of the focus and a lot of talk around what kind of training do these employees get? And um, is there s- other issues? I mean, aside from this, have there been other issues where you see some people that just don't seem to be um, equipped to handle what they're seeing? Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I think there's a fairly high turnover rate at Veterans Affairs. Um my understanding is that some of the offices can have quite a toxic atmosphere, and so the turnover is quite high. So, you know, I think that yeah. the training is maybe not as extensive as it could be or should be. You know, you make a really good point because, you know, in response, uh, Veterans Affairs says, just like, you know, so many other businesses and services right now, they're saying, at like you just said, you know, staff are burnt out, their staff are leaving, they're struggling on their own right. Um, so have you seen service declining? I mean, I, I'm sure there's always been issues, but have you noticed over the past six months or a year or two years, things have been getting worse? Um. I wouldn't say worse as far as, you know, service from, you know, frontline case managers and veteran service agents. Um, Not necessarily worse, but certainly not better. Um, And I think more, like I said, the turnover. There used to be a time when, you know, case managers were around for a while. You know, my husband's first case manager had been with the department forever. Um, And now it's, you know, oh, I've been here for a year or I've been, you know, six months. Um, so they don't, the service just isn't there as as much as it could be. Is it, it is there a fix, um, Debbie? I mean, I, I guess that's what we come down to at the end. How, how do we make this better when it seems like they're dealing with staffing issues like everybody else? And I mean, how do we make this better? What do we need to do? Well, I don't know how we make it better. Well, other than kind of holding our elected officials to account, um, you know, I think putting pressure on our, you know, our members of parliament, um, you know, is a good way to start. Um, And I think, you know, voicing opinions, the general public, I think, has this misconception that veterans are, are treated great mm-hmm. um, and that is not the case i mean we deal with veterans who are in crisis so we see you know the worst of the worst sometimes and um i just think that as as the public maybe we should pay closer attention i guess to how veterans are being treated and you know help if we can help um i think that we you know we send these guys and girls off to war and to protect our country and you know and then they come home broken and we turn our backs on them so i think you know we could do a better job in that regard
Yeah, and it and, and shouldn't even be a question of, of if we do a better job or not. I mean, it's our obligation. I mean, you're absolutely mm-hmm. right. We ask them to do this, and uh, we des- they deserve this uh, in, in, in return. There's no question about it. Debbie, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. No problem. Thanks for having me. You bet. That's Debbie Lowther, who is the executive director of Vets Canada, one of the groups um, that is, uh, you know, concerned with uh, what, what happened. And just, you know, to bring you full circle on this story, as we say, it started with a vet going in, um, seeking support for uh, PTSD and some mental health issues. And um, the caseworker that uh, he was speaking to, um, I don't know if he suggested uh, medically assisted uh, dying um, or just, I, I'm not sure exactly what the conversation was, but it was brought up, not by the vet, but by the caseworker. In response, the federal government is launching a, quote, full and thorough investigation into this case uh, of the employee discussing medical assistance and dying. In a statement provided to Global News a late Friday afternoon, uh, a spokesperson for Veteran Affairs Minister Lawrence McCauley said the minister has directed his deputy minister to undertake a full and thorough investigation into this matter, saying all frontline staff at Veteran Affairs Canada are given formal training, direction and advice on how to approach issues around MAID, medical assistance in dying. Uh, and as you heard from Debbie, maybe the training should be don't just refer them to their health care provider. Seems like a pretty good starting point, right? You don't want to wade into this if you're not equipped and, and fully versed in it. So, yeah, um, we'll find out. We'll, we'll stay on this story and bring you an update once this investigation is concluded. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing. However you cha-ching from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the, we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. So if you're following along with the news in our country, and I know you are, if you're listening to this show, you're interested in the news, you're interested in current affairs, you're paying attention to what's happening not only in our province, but in our country. And you are well aware that right across the country, in every province, um, we are seeing massive, massive, massive pressure on the healthcare systems. It just, I mean, it is. I don't care what province you pick. Uh, there were stories this weekend about Manitoba. There's stories about, you know, Toronto having, I mean, it's not, nobody's immune right now. We're seeing massive pressure in our healthcare system. And um, there's all kinds of talk about what are we going to do to fix it? And, you know, the typical response is spend more money, spend more money, spend more money. That's what we always do, spend more money. Uh, obviously, it hasn't worked because we're in the mess we're in. Uh, so there are other ways of doing it, right? But we have, and we, we talk about this around so many issues uh, here on the air, this all or nothing approach. And it makes no sense to have this conversation. You, and I don't care what it is. If, if you're talking about um, climate change, it's all or nothing, right? It's all or nothing in some instances. Well, that doesn't work. It's the middle ground. We are actually going to make progress. Um, and, and so many issues like that. 
um, including healthcare. You take a look at healthcare for a lot of people in this country, the mere mention of any involvement of a private healthcare system immediately means it's time to go to war. Can't happen. Universal healthcare, that's sort of the bedrock, that's the foundation. We will not stand for any movement from that principle, even though even though it's already taking place in a lot of areas in our country. But okay, whatever. Regardless, are we seeing a change in perceptions among Canadians? We might be. We might be. The most recent polling on this happened late last year, late in 2021, by Leger Marketing on behalf of Second Street. The survey was done in late November, and it was found that 67% of Canadians surveyed support governments using private and non-profit health clinics to reduce surgical backlogs as a result of the pandemic. So that's 67%, only 18% opposed that plan, didn't want to see that happen. 62% of Canadians surveyed think that Canadians should be allowed to spend their own money on the health care they want at a private clinic in Canada. 62% support, 27% opposed. So public perception seems to have changed. Will we see us move in that direction? There's a case to be made for it. And uh, the case was recently made by Eric Johnson uh, in a piece in the Globe and Mail. He's a Canadian. He lives in the UK, works in the insurance industry, and he's joining us now to sort of tell us what his take is on this. And um, it sort of lays out the groundwork for how this might be possible. Eric, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time. Hi, thank you very much. Yeah, taking a look at this situation, it seems like it's a non-starter for so many people. And then politically, it's also uh, seen as very, very frightening to even go down this road. We don't even seem to get started on this conversation in this country. Well, it, it's interesting because like, I, I grew up in Calgary and I've lived in the UK now for 18 years. And even when you, when you mentioned universality and that being people think that means it needs to be government run. Yeah. There's lots of European countries right. that have got a, Europe, uh, a universal healthcare system where it's actually completely private. So meaning it's privately financed, privately delivered, but heavily regulated. So, you know, you look at the Netherlands where you must buy insurance, but a lot of it's delivered by the private sector. The same thing happens in Switzerland. So I, I don't think this this binary we always think about in Canada, or we don't want to be like the U.S. I don't think we should be like the U.S. either. You know, <laughs> be, be more like Europe. And so, you know, when you take a look at it, and, and you sort of lay out a really good case in terms of how this would work. When we talk about one of the things we always talk about with backlogs around surgery, hip, knee replacement, things like that, and, you know, a way that it could mm-hmm. work and it does work in other countries. Yeah, so like I, I just looked at you know publicly available data in in Alberta and Canada, and you know I think it surprised a lot of Canadians to know that there's actually over a hundred orthopedic surgeons in Canada looking for work, but wow. yet we hear there's not enough doctors, right? So that that's an interesting stat. We also hear that there's not enough nurses. Well, actually, forty two percent of nurses in in Canada work either casual or part time. So possibly we're just not incentivizing or encouraging or giving the work environment where those nurses might want to work full time. So the, the example I propose is really simple. You've got a bunch of unemployed orthopedic surgeons who partner with Kaiser Permanente, which is a very well-known nonprofit U.S. healthcare provider, um, to build a, an orthopedic facility in Alberta that can cater to people who want to pay to get their care from Canada. More importantly, it can cater to Americans who increasingly travel to Mexico for care. But I think reputationally, people in America and even their insurers would send patients up to Alberta. But I think the most important part of the model I looked at is for every 10 surgeries that are done by this private not-for-profit hospital, the, the facility has to offer three surgeries to AHS. 
So there, you've got people in Alberta coming off the wait list by right. going to this clinic, but then you've also got AHS, AHS patients coming off the AHS wait list because they're being treated by this facility. The interesting part, and I think where, where we run into the resistance and we run into the pushback is, is paying for your own. If people want to pay for it, if we want to bring in people from the U.S. who want to pay for it, that's where the line seems to be drawn. Because we have a clinic being built on um, Enoch Cree Nation just outside of Edmonton. They will be offering, okay. it's a private clinic. However, every surgery done in that facility must be funded by Alberta Health. So it's just another building, but it's, you know, and it's operated privately. But for them to do the surgeries, they have to be part of the public system. I see. I I often struggle with this that no one should make money in 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 healthcare, and that somehow incentives don't matter in healthcare. So, when when you read about the paper, I read the the Globe and the National Post, and you see you know government struggling to issue passports, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But yet we think that same government should be able to fund, deliver, and administer all your healthcare. I, I just don't think it's possible. Yeah. You know, do, do, would we want to have the Canadian food service where the government runs the grocery stores? I don't think so. But yet food's really important for people in Canada. So I do think the mechanism and the incentives involved in a competitive marketplace do drive better service. And then you hear, well, they're just going to get really poor quality care. Right. Well, you don't hear people going to Safeway and dying en masse from bad food. It's, it's, it's a mentality change that I think people need to have. I think you're right. The other issue I think causes a lot of concern for people is the option of buying your own private health insurance that gives you access to uh, another tier of healthcare. Well, you make a case for that as well as how that can work and mm -hmm. does work in some locations. Walk us through that. So it's interesting. In the UK, there's a, and actually, I, so I, I've got private healthcare insurance through my work here. I'm covered by the NHS, which is the national health system, very yep. similar to yep. what you have in Alberta. Um, my private health insurance, I, I bet my sister to guess how much it cost, and she guessed uh, 6,000 pounds a year. No, it, it's 600 pounds a year, which actually isn't a lot of money, considering I get next day access to any care or surgery, including cancer treatment. Um, but there's a much more affordable um, private health option here that a company offers. So if your treatment from referral from your general practitioner to seeing a specialist takes longer than 18 weeks, the health insurance kicks in and you'll get to see a specialist within the week and then get your surgery or treatment done. And that only costs $60, $60 a year. But that's cheap, right? Okay. And that's a sort of a, a safety valve um, type of health insurance that exists in the UK as well that I, I, I don't think most Canadians would have a problem with. Do you see the emergence of a quote-unquote two-tier system where people like you who've gone and bought mm -hmm. the additional assurance and like you say you you know you have access to same day medical appointments or next day are people who unable to afford that did they find themselves languishing and waiting for a week to see a gp in the uk um yes like the, the the public system wait lists are long but they're not nearly as long as as canada so one example would be you know um most patients in the uk can see their their general practitioner within a week and every single person in the uk by law and by right has access to a family doctor okay most canadians right now i'm hearing that in bc over nine hundred thousand people don't have access to a family doctor no so you're, you're right yeah it, it, it's not a cure-all but it but it but it does serve as a safety valve you know what eric we already have 
you know, a lot of private health care. I mean, we've got this sort of understanding or this belief that we have universal health care, and we do up to a point, but then all kinds of things that are health care, uh, you're allowed to go out and get private insurance for, and we all get them through our employer and That's things true. like that. You know, yeah, so for, for physiotherapy or prescription prescriptions drugs, or right, you, there's cover for that. So, I mean, the system in a way already exists. This would just be expanding it, correct? Yes. It's an interesting case, and I think a lot of people are sort of uh, starting to warm up to it quite a bit. Eric, thank you so much for uh, starting the conversation no, thank for you. us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. That's Eric Johnson, who's a Canadian living in the UK, working in the insurance industry, which uh, one of you pointed out, saying that, um, you know, he's insurance, so he stands to benefit. Possibly. Yeah, I, 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 sure. Okay. Does that mean we reject his viewpoint out of hand? No, of course not. I mean, there are some of the points that he's making. You know, we, we, we talk about universal health care and, you know, would you call Australia and the UK and Germany and the Netherlands somehow less socialist in their approach than Canada is? I mean, if you talk about universal health care systems, NHS, the national health care system in Great Britain, is held up as sort of the gold standard. It's the runaway winner in international surveys of healthcare, uh, year after year after year after year, they have this component added to it. Does it make their system better? He said he lives there. He's part of the universal healthcare system, just like everybody else in Britain. But he also has that added private insurance that he's gone out, bought on his own, and gives him access to different components of the healthcare system. Is that something? Is that something we should at least entertain the thought of in this country? Is there a way of doing this that doesn't make it the destruction of public health care and we're going to end up like the United States? Can we take a look at these other countries and say, okay, what are they doing? What's working? What isn't? I think maybe it's time. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. weekend, an anesthesiologist from Grand Prairie was officially welcomed. I'm not sure what the official term is, ratified? Or, I'm not sure how they call it, but it doesn't matter. Um, officially welcomed as the 155th president of the Canadian Medical Association. Uh, it's been around for 155 years, rather. Um, and in doing so, Dr. Alika Fontaine becomes, uh, LaFontaine becomes the first ever Indigenous president of the Canadian Medical Association. And joining us now to tell us all about it, we have Dr. LaFontaine. Uh, Dr. LaFontaine, thank you for joining us. Appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. Um, first of all, congratulations. This is a, it's a remarkable achievement. Yeah, thank, thank you very much. You know, anytime that you get a chance to be the first at something, you can 
maybe bring in some new ideas and maybe chart a new direction. And that's what we're really hoping at the Canadian Medical Association. You know, relatively speaking, you're a young man, um, but you've been in this for a while. And I'm sure like anybody who rises to a level you have, and perhaps more so in your case, you've had to overcome obstacles, right? What's the journey been like for you to get to the place where you're now president of the CMA? You know, being president of the CMA wasn't really on my life plan. You know, it wasn't really an aspiration that I had had. But in the course of the past few years, as patients know and physicians across the province know, we've been having a very, very tough time. You know, our relationships have gotten further apart from each other. Uh, Care has gotten worse. Access times have gotten worse. And I really saw an opportunity to make an impact there, and that's that's why I ran. And I'm really grateful to the physicians of Alberta to put their faith in me. Personally, your own you know journey. Uh, I mean, you're you're a trailblazer. You're you're a role model. Did you envision this? Um, like you say, it wasn't necessarily on your radar, but did you see it as something as even being possible? Or were there times in your life where you thought the obstacles are just too many? You know, when when you don't have that example out there or that. Uh, person who exemplifies that leadership position, I, it doesn't really cross your mind that it could be something that you could right. do. So to be honest, it wasn't really something that uh, I thought was possible. But, you know, there, there was some prodding from some really supportive people, and I put my hat in the ring and ended up working out. And like you say, you come in at a time where we know, and the stories are every day, uh, right across mm-hmm. this country, where healthcare is under incredible pressure right now. So as stepping in as president of the CMA, what do you see your role in trying to address some of the problems we're seeing in healthcare right now? How do you get involved in that area? I I think one of the realities that we just have to acknowledge is that in this day and age, the systems of care that we've leaned on for so many years are, are truly collapsing. You know, having these rolling closures of, you know, emergency services or other types of services across provinces and territories in Canada, you know, this is not a normal thing. You know, hearing in the news every single day about nursing shortages and physician shortages, losing family physicians, um, this is not a normal cycle of ebb and flow in, in the healthcare system. And so in this environment, it's really, really important to make sure that we chart a path towards regaining that hope. And just acknowledge we we are at a point where patients are not happy with the care that's being provided. And those who provide the care are not happy with the working environments that push us away from patients. Two major, major issues, obviously. The two biggest issues, I would think, when you talk about patients and providers, neither of them being happy. How do we fix that? We've had a long conversation on the air this morning about possibly exploring more private components of the public health care system, not abandoning public health care, but I mean, mm-hmm. what, what do, when, you, when you hear conversations like that, what are your thoughts? So I, I think we need to lean into these tough conversations and really hear uh, what's being said and then determine what we're actually trying to achieve. So th- there's two types of privatization that often get mixed together. The first is when you have a really strong, well-functioning public system that's supported by private care. Right. That is not the environment we're in right now. We all know the public system is collapsing. The second type is outsourcing. And I I think when you talk to the average physician across the country, that's the kind of care that we're worried about. You know, if you push out capacity from the healthcare system, you fragment it, you lose the accountability and responsibility for ensuring that high-level quality of care. You know, you, you have a bunch of cooks in the kitchen, and eventually you can't even cook a basic meal. And so... It's really scary what can happen if outsourcing becomes mainstream. And we've seen that happen with food supply across the country. We've seen that happen with, you know, electronics and cars. You know, inflation and 
disjointed uh, workflows is going to become a, a very real thing if we really lean into that outsourcing type of privatization. So you see it more as a, a possibility if it's a complementary situation where they both work together? Yeah, I, I think it comes back to what we're trying to accomplish. And it's going to be nuanced for every yeah, type of for care. Sure. You know, yeah, so you know, virtual care is, is one thing that, that definitely has a lot of private involvement. The question is, is, is the virtual care appropriate? Is it the type of care that you should be so, seeing someone in brick and mortar versus seeing somebody online? You know, are people getting uh, the type of care that they need and the satisfaction, not just the time to see someone, but also the quality of care? And if we start looking at all those different components, I think we can actually have a real conversation about how we need to build the healthcare system in the future. Now, as we mentioned, you're the first Indigenous president. How will that inform this process? Obviously, it gives you a unique perspective, one that we haven't had with the Canadian Medical Association before. How, how will that inform how you go about doing your job? I, I know I'll bring with me a lot of lived experience, particularly that of exclusion. You know, and I, I will say as somebody who works in Grand Prairie, it, it's not truly a rural community. I mean, we have a Costco. Yeah, yeah. You know, the fair size. Um, it, it's, it's shown me and had me provide care to many rural patients and, you know, not having options in your care, you know, showing up and, and not really uh, understanding what's going on because people don't take the time to explain things, not having the resources that you might have in Edmonton or Calgary when you're providing care. You know, th- these are the realities of patients who live outside the city, particularly in rural areas. And so being able to bring that perspective, bring in, the, bring in this perspective of someone who I uh, wasn't always at the table or when I was, wasn't always taken seriously. You know, these are things that not only apply to Indigenous patients and other racialized communities, but just to patients in general now in the current state of our system. Yeah, and I, I was going to ask you about that, because like you say, Grand Prairie isn't rural, but you deal with a lot of um, uh, rural health care, I'm sure. How mm-hmm. big, of, how how do you, I mean, is, is the system, I guess the best way of putting it is, is it fragmented? Do we have a problem where we've got certain issues in rural healthcare, we've got certain issues when it talks about the big cities, when we talk about our indigenous population, whatever the case may be, or do we have, like you say, a system in collapse coast to coast to coast for all aspects, everybody involved? Yeah, there's really been two decades where governments have approached the health system with this almost obsession when it comes to cost cutting. Yeah, You know, even when it comes to announcements, we immediately have this knee-jerk reaction that cost cutting is inherently a good thing. But we all know that you can't cost cut beyond a certain point. You know, you can cut your budget, but eventually you won't have enough food to eat or you won't have heat or other things. And so we, we've come to that point in healthcare where we've cut the wrong things. And so sitting down and talking through where those wrong things are and, you know, hearing directly from patients and frontline, you know, physicians and nurses and other providers telling us where we've made those cuts too deeply is really going to lead us back to where we can actually have those relationships again in healthcare, where you show up and you can expect a good experience. Which is what we all want. Um, Dr. LaFontaine, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for the call. Thank you. That's Dr. Alika LaFontaine, who is the president of the Canadian Medical Association, effective yesterday, also an anesthesiologist from Grand Prairie. He grew up in uh, Saskatchewan, Regina, I believe. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.